Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by your friends at G-Adventures. G-Adventures has been providing life-changing small group adventures to travellers for almost 30 years. But it's not just your life that's changed. It's the lives of all the people in the places we visit. To ensure we're protecting children around the world when we travel, G-Adventures work to create global good practices guidelines for child welfare. Because kids are kids, no matter where they live, and it's critical that no child is ever harmed as a result of tourism. You, the traveller, have the power to make a true impact in the communities you visit. And that's why we actively work to ensure children are protected in the places we operate. Learn more about this policy and all of our responsible travel initiatives at gadventures.com.au. Hello there. Good to have you with us for this month's Dumbo Feather podcast. We've got one of Australia's greats, the magnificent Claire Bowditch, dear friend of Dumbo Feathers. We featured her right back in issue 37 of the magazine. Every bit of this woman's voice speaks the truth, and it wants you to do the same. Claire's a storyteller, businesswoman, Ari award-winning singer, mother of three. She's done radio, she's done TV... And she's just released her first book, Your Own Kind of Girl, a memoir in which she confronts her inner critic head on. It's the story Claire promised herself at age 21, that she would one day be brave enough and well enough to write. In this chat, Claire's in Byron Bay on her national book tour, speaking with her good mate, our publisher at Dumbo Feather, Barry Liberman. Oh my gosh, this is a dream come true. You'll never guess who I bumped into down the street. <laughs> um, I'm so thrilled to have my mate Bernie Fanning here. He's one of been, been one of my creative champions over the many years that we've known each other and I was so pleased that he could come and open with a song that we wrote. It's called yeah. <laughs> Fire and Rain. James Taylor may or may not have sung it before. All right, babes. It's my great pleasure to be here too. Thanks for having me. This is one of my favourite songs and I'm happy to be here to play it with one of my favourite people. So here we go. Yeah, yeah. Sort of fuck it up early and then you can just get on with it. You know when you make a mistake early, you're nervous like... Oh, I will make a mistake. Yeah, okay, great. All right, babes. James Taylor played this, so it's not, it's, I'm not at that level. Just lower your expectations, <laughs> ladies and gents. Yeah, they've heard T in sympathy, okay? They know. Just yesterday morning, 
They let me know you were gone Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning And I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again We didn't hear you singing that time There's more chances won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You gotta help me make a stand. You just got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand. I won't make it any other way. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again I've been walking my mind to an easy time My back turned towards the sun Lord knows when the cold wind blows It'll turn your head around There'll be hours of time on the telephone line To talk about things to come Sweet dreams and flying machines And pieces on the ground Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you, baby One more time again Thought I'd see you one more time again There's just a few things coming my way this time around now Thought I'd see you, thought I'd see you, thought I'd see you now Fanning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, gosh, what a special way to begin um, an event like this. It is an event of friendship and um, celebration. And to that end, I couldn't have been more thrilled when my dear friend from university moved to Byron Bay. Um, I missed her, but it's been a really good excuse to come up here 
And her name is Barry Liberman and she's our host for tonight. And I just can't tell you how special and precious this woman is to me and her work. And I won't go on, but Barry Liberman, a woman who knows how to do a job. Barry Liberman. I just read that actually in the book. It's this title of your essay in Chapter 7, The Simple and True Story of Claire Bowditch, which aims to explain why she is an excellent candidate for acceptance into the Bachelor of Creative Arts, otherwise entitled, Please Accept Me or I'll Cry. <laughs> Look, you have some wacky students and I was one of them. If I hadn't have taken that leap of faith and applied, I would not have had the pleasure of meeting you, so I'm grateful just for that. Yeah, me too. I'm so grateful. And it's in a long list of things that you did that were brave. This was a book that you promised yourself. And I'm so glad that you got to write it and you got to this moment. And I know I've heard a lot of people ask, they've asked me questions and I know they've asked you specific questions about your suffering that you articulate in the book. Obsession, depression, weight, sadness, grief. But that, that didn't I didn't, I finished the book and that didn't seem to be, to be the focus of the book. It felt like a love song to your 21-year-old self. What a beautiful way to put it. And also to your five-year-old self. And um, it was a love song from the future that you're going to be okay, kid. Yeah, it was a promise made. It was a tree planted. Um, I said to myself... I'm not capable of writing this book right now, I knew that, but I hoped that one day I would write it. And I, I needed the hope of the promise, but I didn't need the pressure of writing it right there and then. I needed to tell myself a story about a hopeful future. And I decided I wouldn't write this book until I was really, really fucking old, like 40. <laughs> How rude. And that's what I said to myself. And then it rolled around and, and I still found myself thinking, gosh, am I, do I have the right to tell this story? You know, is, is, do they just want the sort of Leonard Cohen top ten? You know, the, the, the exciting highlights from a life of, you know, making music in Australia that I didn't believe. It's been a fun bloody ride, but I did not believe that was the most useful or even interesting part of my life story. So what, did, I, what did make you write the book? I haven't asked you that. Why, why now? Why did you decide to write it when you did? Because um, friends like you told me it was about fucking time. <laughs> that was part of it. But also I needed to, I knew I was ready. I knew I processed enough and I was, you know, maybe it's not rare, we don't talk about it enough. I'd had a really tough time in my 20s. I didn't think I'd recover. I did. I promised myself if I did recover I would one day write this story. And I wanted, in a way, to talk to the world a little bit about the long tail of childhood grief and how it actually looks in its minutia and how it plays itself out over a lifetime. You know, we don't tell that story very often, but because of the peculiar way my brain was stacked, I remembered things clearly and I just wanted to find a house for all of that love and all of that feeling and hope in a way. We met at uni, as you said, not, not long after the trauma of this time when you were 21. What was the story you told yourself to get to there and, and what kept you through that time? To uni particularly? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
so to put this in context, I worked in it when I was 19. Uh, sorry, when I was 18, um, I left university. I'd gone to a pretty conservative Catholic girls' school. Um, and at about the age of 15, through a series of unfortunate events, it was made quite clear that perhaps that wasn't the right place for a gal like me. Miracle of miracles, I was the youngest of five, all of us 18 months apart, and for some reason my parents agreed that they would allow me to go to what was possibly the most alternative progressive school in the whole of Australia at the time called Press Hill. Actually... Mm. Yeah. I know your mother. Yeah, I know. How did she let you go to Press Hill? <laughs> because my mother is also from Amsterdam. So my mother's, a, my mother's quite wild in her own way as well. And she knew, you know, m maybe my sister Anna had a bit to do with it, had a bit of chats with her. But she said she knew that I needed to do that. So she let me do that. They let me do that. And, you know, I spent my good first six months wagging. And then... So I showed up at school and I started to enjoy learning and I made great friends. I made friends with Emmy, who's here today. You know, she was, um, I was effectively her babysitter and, and we had a really like millions of years between us. It was like six years, eight years difference. I met friends like that and their families and I met Bohemians and I remember realising for the first time, I actually didn't realise how religious my family was. But my best friend, who's still to this day one of my closest friends, Deepa, came home one day, she's from a bohemian, you know, Jewish entrepreneurial, um, free-thinking family. <laughs> she, she came home, we started a band, we were 15, she came into the front door and went, holy fuck, you didn't tell me you were this religious. And I went, like, what do you mean? What gave it away? And she's like, dude, there is a holy water font in the hallway. <laughs> and there is a child-sized statue of Jesus and Mary in the front window. So let's just start there. <laughs> so I love your mum. I love it. I love it too. She's dedicated to her faith and it's actually been quite a handy thing. It was one of the things that held us together as a family through the trauma and, you know, the experience of losing one of ours, losing my sister Rowena, who was two years older than me. Um, but the question you asked is really about, you know... What was the story? Yeah, the story I was telling myself. So, um, to cut a long story short, I had that tough time in England, in Oxford. I, I have no doubt that many of you will see yourself in this story because it is a common story. I was at one in four Australians who suffer from an acute period of mental ill health and the descent in was quick and fierce and the road out was long. By the time I met you, Barry, by the time I wrote that application, that was one of my first courageous acts, and a miracle happened to me. I thought my life was over, and I found a little tiny book by a family friend, recommended it by an old-fashioned doctor. And I, at any other time in my life, <laughs> I would have just looked at this book and gone, no, that's gone, that's like a Bragg's vinegar bottle. That's just, there's a picture of... A very elderly woman in a frame on the front who looked a lot like the Queen. And the title of the book was Self-Help for Your Nerves. <laughs> and I thought, this is not for me. But I tell this story always because it's important. This is sort of one of the impetuses for writing this story. Um, I read that book and it, it gave me an explanation of the shakiness, the, the racing thoughts, the weight, sudden weight loss, the inability to eat or sleep or think correctly. 
you know. So that I, I went, ah, she calls this nervous suffering. She says I can recover. And she taught me a technique through that book called, which I ended up calling the Faffle. So I gave it a proper name, which is an acronym for a technique that allowed me to not feel afraid of the fear anymore, the shakiness, the unreality, the obsessive thoughts. Her technique was to face, accept, float and let time pass. And I had just started doing that, practicing it. And it sounds a simple technique, but it worked a treat for me. My recovery began then and my courageous activity in the world began then because it was a matter of survival. And so by the time you met me in that first year uni, I had just, I was not ready to tell an ambitious story. Not then, I had been before, I'd lost that ability. There was no ambition left in me. I wanted to survive, I wanted to live. And I wanted to do something useful in the world and I didn't know what that was. I was overwhelmed by this, why am I here? Why am I alive? What are we doing here? Existential crisis. And I decided to just ignore the existential crisis and just get on with the day at a time. So by the time I met you, I was telling myself a really simple story. I had started to tell myself, I have the right to be here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't understand what my destiny is, but I have a right to be here and I'll work it out. I just started to change my relationship with time. And so that's why I didn't talk very much that first year. And I was so over, I just was so in admiration of your confidence and, you know, all the, the we're at art school. Yeah. I and thought I, you were so fabulous. Did you? Yes. God. I did. Well, there's a vote for keeping your mouth shut, guys. <laughs> People project all sorts of things onto you. I was so grateful to have another chance at life, I think. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, I, I appreciated it. So that's, that's one of the stories I'd started to tell myself when we met each other. I still constantly had the story of, you know, you're too fat, you have no right to be here, and why do you, how arrogant of you to think you can make your living making art, your work is not as good as the other artists in, the, in here, you're a phony, you're a fake, all the usual lower brain survival set of thoughts. But I started to be able to put it into context and say, ah, that's a habit of thinking and I have a higher brain and I have, I'm going to tell that voice of the inner critic to fuck off. And that's what I did. That's the only secret of success I've got. They don't even need to buy the book now. <laughs> that makes me really sad. I just can't imagine the world without you in it. Luckily, you don't have to. <laughs> I just, well, just to think like that life sort of has that preciousness to it and you never know what the person next to you is, is suffering. It is an amazing thing to, for me when I read the book and to truly understand the context of the suffering that you've been through, to understand the long arc of your life and how you got to live the list you were hoping that you would live. What's been the response of people to the book who have read it and, and have absorbed it? What, what, what's that been like for it to be out in the world? Well, to me, it's been incredibly heartening because whenever you engage in any creative project or any act of courage, you're working on a hunch of sorts. And the hunch being, I don't have any idea if this is going to work or not. And in fact, to be honest, one of the reasons it took so long to write this is because there's nothing better... You know, if you want to trigger your self-doubt, write a book about it. 
you know, it's, it was quite acute. And there was one very important period of writing this book. I, I didn't know if I'd have the courage to tell this story. I knew intuitively or just, I just knew that in order to tell it correctly, I needed to go back to some real pain. And I don't like bringing the room down with my pain. If you've ever seen me play in this room, I'll sing a really sad song and then crack a seven or eight jokes in a row just to lift the mood. And then we'll go back down again, we'll lift the mood. And I was scared to go down there. But I knew I had to because I knew that was going to be the useful bit because that's a bit that we're, where we all realise that we, none of us get off scot-free and that's okay. We actually, it's like actually okay. This part of the part of the process, part of the connection. So I mentioned this to my mate, Bernie, and he said, look, look, you know, he, he very kindly um, had a mate in town who offered me a bungalow for a week and a half to come down and write, and I really needed a break, and I needed to be able to sit with this. So I came here to Byron, and I wrote some of the most difficult chapters of this book and drafts of them here in your town, and I swam every day in this ocean, and I walked and walked and walked. I talked to very few people, just really, um, you know, to, to Bernie and his beautiful wife and kids. They were sort of my only mates, really, in town. And, you know, a couple of other, like some, a dolphin that I met. And, like, that was, was sort of communing with nature. So... You know, the process of writing it, and all the, all, the, all the while you're thinking, is this going to be worth it? Like, is this going to make sense to anyone? Am I just, you know, am I actually doing service or is this a big, um, you know, mope fest, right? So that was one of the things that I was thinking of, and it was here that I realised I can tell this story in a way that isn't going to sink people. I can actually tell of the joy as well. The joy was so central to the years when our family was dealing with um, and living through my sister's illness. There was so much love and she had such a full life and I realised this is an opportunity for me to talk about her full life. It was shorter than I like, but it was full. So to tell that story and get the kind of, well, frankly, the kind of um, hugs and connection that we've had in this tour has just been unbelievable to think that there are people listening to the audiobook to get to sleep and my mum's Dutch apple tart recipes in there she also does the language warning so <laughs> <laughs> things the funny things like that these things are thrilling and yeah so the the bottom line is people said to me you won't be sorry that you wrote it my agent said that to me you said it to me Bernie said it to me I needed to be reminded of it and what a friggin' thrill to actually be here and have it done. <sighs> I guess that's another part of you. There's another voice. There's a voice that tells you you're not good enough, but you must have always heard that other voice that told you one foot in front of the other, you just might make it. And I saw you do that with the book and you were writing an album just casually at the same time. <laughs> And mothering your three children. It was a full plate, yep. It was a full plate, but you showed up, you were writing at our house, you just would find any room of your own, any quiet room to keep going. Yeah. And that was formidable to watch. Was it? Yes. You just kept showing up and you kept putting out the pages until the thing was done. What's that voice in you? Hmm. So that voice is the dream of you. That voice is the dream of 
imagine if you could take all the things of your life and put them in just such a way that they could be useful to other people. And this is a selfish compulsion. It could just be, you know, I mean, it's a very sort of curious, very human thing, but I've always had this thrill from being useful, always, you know, and it was embedded in me as a kid. I love it. There's no better feeling in the world to me. And I know that because people have been so kind to me in my life. You know, so kind. Um, and so it's like this, the thing that kept me going was this thrill of, oh my gosh, I get to hand on the baton. That's pretty fun, that thought. And it was also, the compulsion was also about honouring my family, honouring their story. And it was about honouring this work of Dr Claire Weeks and my dear friend John Hedigan, who was my first musical champion. And yeah, and, and knowing that I could, I'd seen in the lines, you know, in the, in the conversations we have after shows, that I knew a little something about this particular thing, how we overcome the voice of self-doubt and how we... People seem to think it, we only win when it disappears. <laughs> like, the voice of doubt shall fall silent and I shall have made it to the zenith. I shall be truly human. My experience has been the opposite. Second, I realised, ah, oh, right, so this voice is going to be here forever and I get to play with it and I get to not let it win and I have a higher brain. I'm not just a survivalist. I have a higher brain and I get to talk back to that voice in my head so maybe that's the voice of the kindness that I've had in my life or I don't know quite what it is, but yeah, there's real, there's, I've never been someone to put a good rage, you know, to waste. I've always felt so angry about the opportunities that we miss out on just by virtue of, you know, it might be our size or our gender or the stories that we tell ourselves. So I think that's what was behind that, I must get this done. Could have also had to do with having signed a book contract. <laughs> I quit my job on radio to write this book. That's another thing. I think sometimes when we take a big risk, you know, marriage is a big risk. You say yes to this person, you know, at the, and, you know, that, that's a big risk. And I think there's great um, buoyancy in taking uh, a big, safe risk. It's quite exciting. So that was it. And you also said that writing a book was very different to an album. Yeah, because albums are easy, guys. <laughs> no, they're not. I thought, here's the thing, you can hide behind an album. I could hide behind an album, you know, not when we're having a chat, you and me, and one-on-one, -on -one, but in a general way, you can hide behind an album. You can pretend it's about someone else. You can mm. use subterfuge, smoke and mirrors, occasional costumes, you know, anything you like. Um, a memoir is... I. There's no point hiding in a memoir because it's, it's not worth anything if you're hiding. Having written the book and just finished an album, what do you long to do now? Like, what's on the list? What's, on, oh. what's the story right now? Um, to be honest, I'm so... I'm really just having a good time, like, right now with you. This is a good time. Well, here's something I haven't said anywhere else. I've got a family member who's not well. And I will be going home. It's probably one of the most funnest, exciting tours of my life. You know, my husband, Marty, and I, and our band, we've always produced work we're really, really proud of. 
But this book is connected in a way that is, was unexpected and is a delight. It's so nice to be here having new conversations and learning so much about Australians, really, you know, through this book. Um, so I'm enjoying myself thoroughly because I've come off the back of a real tough year and I'm probably going back into a complex space when I get home. I dare say I will write some more and I dare say that next year... In April and May, the album that we have been recording will come out to you. But I think in the space in between, I'll be living of a simple pace whilst compulsively Instagramming in the toilet, which is the only lockable room in the house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I couldn't find it in the book. But uh, do you remember yes. the list? I'll find it. Do you explain what this is? Um, I, was, I was on my way to England... And you wrote a list. Ma so, yes. Yeah, so um, I was off the back of a, I don't know, has anyone ever been in love? And then had their hearts smashed to the floor and then jumped on a bit more. It wasn't like that. <laughs> but I felt it was like that. It was a relationship that had been going on for a long time. It broke up in a, a way that I just wasn't quite expecting, even though I'd been threatening to break up with him for about two years, so whatever. You know, so, so in the hurt of that, I made a call that I was going to go to England. And again, I said to myself, the story I to always to told myself about my body, you know, my big body as a kid, it was called a big body, and I was so happy and jiggly. You can see this girl on the front. But at a certain point, that changed for me, and I had... My body had changed shape. I had been received in the world in a different way and it had stuck in my head this thought that my life will begin again when I'm thin. So I told myself I, wasn't I was going to, off the back of this heartbreak, I didn't say this out loud, I was going to England and I wasn't going to come back till I was thin and fabulous. And what a better setup for a nervous breakdown, I don't know. So there we are, the secret story I told myself about, you know, if women in the world, we matter if we can control our weight, if we can control our feelings, if we can control our ageing. So there it was. In the meantime, what I think is really interesting perhaps is that concurrently with that story was this desire to live a big life and to secretly mumble the list to myself. So I think it was, you know, it was just before... I've always kept diaries, which is one of the reasons I've been able to be so accurate in this book. I went through the torture of reading back through my old bloody teenage diaries. <laughs> oh, the poetry. Oh, oh, the missed lyrics. Oh, the albums. Anyway, one of the things, the treasures I did find was this, a list I wrote before I went to England. So... I'm just going to read you all the incredible list in my neatest possible handwriting. I wrote down that one day I would write a novel, make an album, act in the theatre, learn a language. Did you do that? You, you do. You speak Dutch? Learn, learn English? Language oh. of love. <laughs> Run fast. I have invented a form of um, health at every size inclusive exercise that I call schwalking. So it's a mixture of shuffling and walking. And um, instructions are on my Instagram for that. I think that counts. Thank you. Do something that meant something. Something that made people feel included. Something that helped people. 
You do that every day. Travel everywhere. Tick. No interest really anymore. I've travelled enough. Melbourne to Byron Bay is enough for me. Make a million dollars minimum. <laughs> Brackets minimum. <laughs> and if I was lucky one day, I was going to love and be loved. I was going to meet the man of my dreams. We were going to have a house in the hills, Brunswick. <coughs> With a garden and a fireplace. And we were going to make music and soup and drink wine and read each other poetry. And it was going to be just like a Joni Mitchell song, only happy. <laughs> and then, if I was really, really lucky, I was going to be a mother. And then a grandmother too. One of those really cool ones who still stood up and did the, the La Bamba at family parties, <laughs> even when she was 90. Tick. So many years later, I always remembered that list. It's one of the things, yet again, that kept me rolling and rocking in my time of great self-doubt. Um, just a little more guitar for me, please, Kim. Thank you. Um, and even a little more vocals. Maybe a smoke machine. That's a reverb. Mm. And I ended up writing this song, which I'd love to play for you. And um, I only finished it. It took me about 19 years to finish. I built it up. and made it sound like it's really good now. But... You, you want to write a novel, make beautiful music, act in the theatre with inspiring humans, learn a language, help people fit in, travel to every country, make a million dollars and smile when your children have babies. Make the heart your home, but in a war you want an amazing life. You can't decide, you think you have to be fully formed already, don't you? You want an
just feels like ordinary everyday hell take it as a sign you need a little time to be still listen for a while you want an amazing life you can't decide you think you have to be fully formed a whole don't you you want voice what a legend go get a copy of your own kind of girl if you haven't already soak up more of the splendor that is claire bowditch dumbo feather is produced on the lands of the yalakut willem clan of the bunurong people of the kulin nations i acknowledge the wisdom and custodianship of elders past present and emerging big thanks to lizzie martin for editing this one and to dennis Liu for the music Have you got your hands on our latest issue of Dumbo Feather magazine? It's titled Our Evolutionary Moment, and it's full of ideas for navigating this crucial time on the planet. Go to dumbofeather.com to get a copy or hit up your local newsagent or bookshop. That's all from us. Take care, and I'll catch you next time on the Dumbo Feather podcast. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at EcoStore. We've been working with EcoStore for years to share their ethos of safer products for home, body and baby, made with respect for the environment. Every product is made from naturally derived ingredients, selected because they are safer and more sustainable. You can find EcoStore products in Woolworths, Coles and Chemist Warehouse and learn more about how they are doing their part for a better tomorrow at ecostore.com.au